Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim wraps up our mini-series on the life of Isaac and gives us some practical ideas for how we can move through the trauma in our own lives. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. glad you're here. If it's your first time here, my name is Tim. I, uh, I would love to get to, to meet you after the service or at some point. Um, I'd love to get to meet you. Um, but I hope you find our church to be a uh, safe space for you to grow in your faith and to ask questions and um, to poke at some things that you may have always assumed and uh, and to actually go there. I think the scriptures often go there and sometimes we're uncomfortable going there. But uh, what you discover is that the Bible actually is willing to go to some of those really hard places and engage in the really hard conversations that we often avoid and are worried about. I don't want to offend. I don't want to. Uh, the Bible often will go to those places. And so hopefully uh, you find that this community is a safe one where you can ask the questions that you've been wondering. Is this an okay question to ask? Is it, am I going to be okay if I ask this question? Um, this morning is another one of those subjects. Uh, we are, so we're wrapping up a uh, micro, I don't, know, I don't have a better word for it, a micro series. We've been in Genesis since uh, the beginning of January, and inside of Genesis there are all these main characters, and we've uh, been kind of creating these micro series, looking at each of these characters and t- like taking an idea and trying to explore that idea through each of the characters. And we've been, uh, most recently, we're looking at the characters of Abraham and his son Isaac, and using those two uh, men as an example of how do we deal with trauma, and uh, process through trauma. And uh, this morning, I want to shift the spotlight just a little bit. Uh, we'll still we'll stick with the subject of trauma, but um, instead of looking at it through the lens of Abraham and Isaac, I want to uh, look at another set of characters. Their names are Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, their stories are interconnected with the story of Isaac. Uh, and yet, um, there's something about these really su- kind of silent characters in our Bible that I think um, have the opportunity to open us up to some really complex complex ideas when it comes to the subject of trauma. Now, uh, when we talk about trauma, especially as we're wrapping up a, a kind of this micro series, this would be the natural time to turn the corner and say, okay, well, okay, we've identified trauma. How do we, how do we deal with it? How do we receive healing from it? How do we, uh, release it or whatever, whatever? Like, how do we, how do we allow God to put us back together? Um, if it sits in the darkness, then the light can never deal with it. And, uh, we believe um, that that Christ is light and uh, the lightness cannot overcome him. So how do we how do we get through it? That's a natural place to turn. I want to hit pause on that though for at least another week. Our next series we're going to look at forgiveness for uh, several weeks. We're going to walk through forgiveness and the steps of forgiveness and what forgiveness is and what it isn't and uh, the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and um, and one is about your heart and the other is about two people's hearts and we can't always uh, control somebody else's heart. All all of that. Uh, but but before we turn there, I I have noticed a, a pattern over the last couple of weeks as we talk about the subject of trauma, and I, I think it caused me to switch gears a little bit. So uh, hopefully that's okay. Uh, what I've observed in some conversations I've had with uh, some of you is, uh, for many of us, uh, this is the first time we've actually thought about trauma for an extended period of time. If we're honest, uh, it is the first time maybe you've heard a sermon on trauma. Um, the first time you've. Uh, in- uh, that just that word has a way of uh, addressing some things in us that we're often just kind of not not paying attention to 
if we're honest, most of us. Uh, I was talking to somebody after the service last week, and they were sharing with me that um, something after the service last week, that something in the service last week caught them, and they said, hey, one of the things I've observed is I'm doing all of these things. Many of them I've been trying to deal with through goals, and I've been setting these different kind of physical goals and eating goals and health goals and relationship goals. Uh, and I didn't realize it until uh, we, you kept saying the word trauma. And every time the word trauma was brought up, all of a sudden I was thinking about this thing that happened to me years ago. And, uh, and the further in we got into the service, I realized maybe it's not me who's brought this up to mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit is doing something. And, uh, and they said, I think this is a, a, a rough quote of what they said. Um, but this person said, I wonder if my current issues and the things I keep hitting roadblocks on are actually stemming from that thing. And then they said this. They said, the weirdest part of that thing is I haven't thought about that in almost two decades. That thing. It happened to me. It's a major thing that happened to me. And I actually wonder if a lot of what I'm doing now stems back to that. But um, for unconscious reasons, I haven't actually thought about that thing for years. Um, and I thought I had stuffed it down and dealt with it. But I now I'm realizing maybe I didn't, didn't deal with it. If we just stuff it down, uh, it's still in there somewhere. Right? If you, you, you jam it in there, a lot of us guys especially, uh, we're good at like jamming it in there and moving on. Um, but if it's in there, it's still in there. I know that sounds obvious, but if it's in there, it's still in there. And uh, as Christians, we want to be healthy. As people, we want to be healthy, right? As humans, we want to be healthy. We want to we live the kind of life that Jesus described as the full life. Life to its fullest, he said. Uh, and if we're going to go after that, I think it's really important that we at least begin by acknowledging it and naming it. Uh, it is my uh, firm conviction that our God wants to heal us. Um, I think as I study the stories of Jesus and how he talks about the Father, I think the Father's heart breaks when our hearts break and God desires to heal us. But if there is something back there that we are not looking at or choosing to acknowledge, uh, then it's really hard to heal what's hidden. And uh, And so my hope this morning is before we turn the corner and talk about forgiveness and how do we deal with forgiveness, uh, I would like to spend at least one more week, or we'll, we'll see if we can wrap it this week, but uh, is uh, to acknowledge it. That's my goal, to simply acknowledge it. Um, uh, here's, here's the premise for the message. I want to keep it as simple as I can and as practical as I can this morning. So I'll give you, I'm going to give you my premise, and then I'm going to give you my outline, and then we'll f- populate the outline. But here's the premise I have this morning. I believe all of us, all of us, without exception, from the youngest to the oldest, I believe all of us have experienced trauma. Now, when I say that, uh, I recognize that not all trauma is equal. Not all of us have experienced equal amounts of trauma. Uh, some uh, have experienced trauma that has been debilitating. It is the kind of trauma that shuts you right down and you can barely get your head off the pillow. Some of you are in the middle of that right now. Even coming to church just takes a tremendous amount of courage and energy um, others of us, it's all these, it's maybe less, uh, less severe. Um, but we've all experienced trauma at some level. That's my premise. And, uh, and it, it has affected our lives, whether we think it has or has, think it has or not. Uh, it, trauma has, uh, it will impact our lives. Especially if, once we work through trauma, it'll impact our lives in some pretty powerful ways and maybe in some really redeeming and, and healing ways for the whole world. Um, but if it's left undealt with, it affects our, our lives in pretty negative ways. It affects how we see the world. Uh, our trauma can affect our worldview. 
Uh, it can it can affect how we respond to other people. Um, maybe people with good intentions but say the wrong thing. It'll, it'll affect how we respond in our defensiveness. Um, it'll affect how we respond to certain circumstances and the posture we take towards just the natural situations of life. Um, so the premise, we all have experienced trauma. At least I believe we all have. I would love, if you disagree, I'd love a conversation with you. I'll buy the coffee. Um, but that's my, it's my assumption moving in. And again, my goal is simplicity. So let me give you my outline. Uh, um, actually, before I do, when I was in seminary, I was told by my seminary professor that uh, the best sermons... In fact, this was the strategy. By the way, this professor was an amazing man. I had a couple of professors of preaching, and he was one of them, and just a tremendous man of God, and uh, and so don't hear this as a negative. Um, but he had said to us in our class that the best sermons are always three points. And uh, he's like, and, and by the way, bonus points if you alliterate the three points. So growing up, I had a, a pastor who would always, it was like, you just start with the same letter. It'd be like, the cross... Christ and cauliflower. And then he'd always say, you'll understand. And then the last point was just kind of shoved in there. But, uh, but three points, three points. And then this professor would say, and if you can end with a poem or a quote. So we, in seminary, we used to joke about the three points and a poem sermons. And those are the best. Uh, and, uh, much to my professor's chagrin, which I realized in the first service, I've never used that word before. I don't think out loud, uh, but to his chagrin, I don't usually preach a three point sermon. Um, I, uh, often have, I try to have one point and, um, actually I don't even like the word points. It's a weird word, right? For a sermon. Like I'm not trying to score points <laughs> or something. Uh, so I, I, uh, I prefer to refer to them as observations. This is something I'm noticing. Do you notice it with me? Uh, but, uh, to maybe to redeem our relationship, my professor and I, um, this morning I want to give you a three observation sermon, uh, three observations that stem from a story that I find to be really, really uh, relevant and really powerful. Um, but three observations, I'll even give them to you. Here's my three observations. First, uh, in moments that should be about celebration, one of the things trauma can do is it can blind us from joy. So where you should be celebrating, trauma can blind us from joy. Second observation, trauma can blind us from reality. Uh, another way to say that is trauma can force us to see things that aren't real. Um, in severe cases, it can cause paranoia. Like you see all kinds of things that aren't real. Um, but even in less severe cases, trauma can get us to see things that simply aren't real. And then uh, the third is in our suffering. So in those times of pain and loss, trauma can blind us from hope. From the sense that it'll, it'll, it'll get better, that it could ever get better. So those are my three points. Um, before we dive in all the way into the points, uh, let me uh, just make sure we're all on the same page and do a little bit of the work we did last week. If you were with us, I know it was a holiday weekend, and so you may not have been with us. Um, but last week, we spent some time talking about what is trauma. How do we define trauma? So there's lots of ways to do this, but just for, so that we're all on the same page, here's the working definition of what, uh, of what we mean this morning, or at least what I mean when I talk about trauma. By the way, uh, this word trauma can be used flippantly. I understand that. We, we use the word trauma for all kinds of things, right? Like we use it for physical injuries, like it's a traumatic injury. Um, uh, we use it for, we use it flippantly when we say things like, oh yeah, I had a really bad taco and it was traumatic, um, right? Like we'll use it like that. Or remember that time Tim sang in the service, what a traumatic experience. Okay, um, that may have been traumatic. However, that's not how we're using it. Uh, I, uh, the word trauma is actually, uh, yes, it can be part of our vocabulary and kind of common speech, but it's actually a clinical diagnosis 
with certain diagnostic properties. That's how we want, I want to think of it uh, this morning. Um, in a clinical sense, a trauma is defined as a psychic injury so destabilizing that it overwhelms normal mental, emotional, and biological functions. The, in my opinion, the greatest expert on trauma that I've discovered is a uh, gentleman by the name of Bessel van der Kolk. He wrote a book called, uh, I highly recommend this book if this is a subject that is interesting at all to you. Um, but the book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And he spends a tremendous amount of research and energy trying to talk through trauma and how physically it, it's, it's manifest in our bodies. But he observes that deeply traumatized people uh, feel a mixture of numbness, withdrawal, confusion, shock, and speechless terror. It's important that we know that because if there are people in our lives that are traumatized and they're feeling they're withdrawing and we come at them with, why don't you ever come to our party when we invite you? Uh, it can actually just push them further away. So it's really important that we recognize that this is a pretty natural response to true trauma. Uh, he goes on to know a pretty good definition of trauma. He says, traumatization occurs when an external event overwhelms the individual's internal resources and external supports for the for coping with the situation. Now, just to break that down, traumatization occurs when an external event. Uh, now, external events can be a single moment in time, a, an accident, a car accident maybe, uh, a um, some kind of an injury uh, or an assault, a natural disaster, a tragedy, the the loss of a loved one. It happens in a moment, um, and that moment affects all kinds of things. Uh, the a breakup with somebody that's like you had built your future on this person, and then the breakup that can that can um, be a significant moment. Uh, a loss of a friend, uh, a friend that you thought we were going to be in this forever, and and then you have this blowout fight, and now you're not talking anymore. So that that can be a one moment in time. It all it can also be uh, something that happens repeatedly over time. So chronic. Uh, in many ways, this, this is, um, uh, well, you, you can think of it as like chronic neglect. Uh, experts are now telling us that chronic neglect of a child, so just ignoring your kid, is as dangerous psychologically to a child as abusing your child. Chronic neglect. Um, it, it can be things like uh, chronic adversity, uh, things uh, like poverty or homelessness or community violence. Uh, this can affect, this. it causes trauma within us. Uh, and, um, and, and it's important that we, again, it's important that we recognize this. So back to the definition, traumatization occurs when an external event, whether that's a single moment in time or repeated things, overwhelm the individual's internal resources. Uh, things like intellectual capacity, spirituality. Um, are we grounded? Uh, so am I smart enough to think through this problem? Am I spiritually grounded enough to know, to have some depth of hope or purpose? Uh, self-confidence, how do I see myself? And resiliency. Uh, resiliency, um, some define it as grit or the ability to bounce back. Different than uh, bootstrapping it, which is just like pretending it's not there. Different than that, but the ability to kind of bounce back after a, something happens to us. Are we good on this definition so far? Um, last point is uh, overwhelms your internal resources to cope with the event. Uh, we have had... Different ways of coping. All of us grow up with different uh, abilities to cope with things. And they're not all equal. Some people are able to... So this is why you will find two people that go through the same set of situ- circumstances. And one is able to kind of move past it. 
more or less unfazed. And the other person, it's like they, they feel like they get stuck in it. We all have been given different abilities to cope. If you grew up in a loving home with parents who told you that you are safe, we will protect you. We're proud of you. You don't have to do anything to earn our love. Uh, if you grew up in a community, whether that was a neighborhood or a church community, where you didn't have to put on a show, you didn't have to look prettier or more perfect than you feel. You could show up as you are, and you could cry, you could hurt, and the people around you, you didn't feel judged by, you felt welcomed by, you felt encouraged by. Uh, if you grew up with adults who protected you, and you knew you were safe, all of these things. Uh, if that is true, any of those things are true, you were given a gift of giving some coping mechanisms that not everyone has. Not everyone has those things in order. Some, Many of you probably didn't have those in order. Uh, and uh, they're not better or worse. These two people are not, one is better than the other. It's just they were given different circumstances and that have given them an ability to cope. Uh, and um, again, back to the premise. We all experience trauma at some level. If you had a uh, loving family, adults, a community, all those things, um, you still have been hurt. Yeah, as a parent, I'm aware that there are things that I'm doing with my kids uh, that someday I'm causing trauma. I'm not even always aware where that's happening. I just know that they're going to have to process through it. I've been given things to my parents. Um, we are human examples as parents. We are not perfect. We are not Jesus. We are human examples. Um, and uh, yet we do our best to build the resiliency. Um, some of you had better examples than others. Okay, so we good with the definition? Okay, let's get into the story. Uh, my first point that I'm going to score, first observation. In moments that should be about celebration, trauma can blind us from joy. Genesis 21, verse 1. This is a powerful story, I think. Uh, now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Let's pause here quickly. Uh, verse, verse one and two are important verses. Uh, notice that, uh, just notice the words, God was gracious to Sarah as he said. God did for Sarah what he promised. Uh, now to back up the story so we're all on the same page. Uh, remember Abraham, Abraham and Sarah want to have kids. This is their heart's desire. They want to have kids. And God has promised them, you guys are going to have kids. Their first response is, but we're old. We're really old. Uh, they're in their 90s when God promises them kids, uh, and actually 70s, and then 25 years past, they still don't have kids. Uh, we're about to read, he's almost, Abraham's almost 100, and Sarah's not far behind. And um, if you find it hard to believe that a 100-year-old woman could have kids, uh, they did too. You're in good company. Uh, in fact, um, do you remember how Sarah's first response when the three visitors meet her and tell her she's going to get pregnant with her own kids? Do you remember how, how she responds? She does what? She laughs. Well done. Yes, well done. She laughs. You, what, do you know how old we are, God? <laughs> like, do you know, like us having kids, this is a shocking and kind of an, uh, like, offensive idea that we could have kids at our age. And yet God promises them kids. And now we read that God has been uh, gracious and he remembered his promise and they have kids. Then verse three, uh, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Uh, that, that word Isaac in Hebrew is Yitzhak. It literally means laughter. 
which is kind of great, right? He names his son after their first response that they're going to have a kid at their old age. They laugh, and he names his son Laughter. When his son Laughter, Yitzhak, Isaac, was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now remember Isaac's name, Laughter. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. They're going to laugh with me. They're going to celebrate with me. They're going to rejoice with me. And then she uh, added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in this old age. Okay, so chapter 21 begins. Laughter, joy, celebration. God has been gracious to me, as he said. God has given me what he promised. It starts strong. Verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. So sometime between the ages of 2 and 4. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. So they get pregnant. God is gracious. They have a son. God has given us what he promised. And now they get past that crucial, in the ancient world, uh, that that. That early season of life was real delicate. Still in many parts of our world today, not many kids, well, there's many kids do not survive two to four years old. But finally, Isaac gets to the point where he's now, it looks like he's going to make it. He's four years old, two years old, somewhere in there. And Abraham says, we made it. God's been good. God gave us what he promised. Let's party. And uh, we read he throws a big feast, which means he invites all of his neighbors, all of his family, all of his friends. He takes the best animals he has and he throws them on a grill. He's going to party. Verse 9. But. Uh Uh-oh. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Now, um, who is this Egyptian slave, Hagar, and his, her son? Um, Do you remember the story of Hagar? It feels like forever ago. Uh, I know we're recapping a lot right now, but um, Chris Thompson preached on it like two months ago. Uh, Genesis 16, we meet Hagar. And uh, Hagar, essentially, whose idea um, was it that Abraham marries Hagar? Do we remember? Sarah. Sarah says, "Ah, God promised you kids, Abraham, but he never said they're going to come from me. We've tried. There's no kids. God promised you kids. You deserve to have your life continue. Why don't you marry uh, her? And she finds an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And Hagar marries Abraham. Uh, then they have, a, they have a, a son named Ishmael together. Ishmael. It's all because of Sarah. Sarah. It was Sarah's idea. And she then immediately, once they have this kid, she like, all of a sudden jealousy settles into Sarah. And she, she like, I don't want, I don't want you having this other son. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's kind of a weird story. It's like, uh, um, days of our lives meets Bridgerton or something. But, but they, uh, they, they, but now we read that Sarah has a son of her own and she looks over at this other son, the son of this other woman, and she didn't like this other kid. She doesn't like that he's on, under the, the roof of their house. And so Abraham, I know you're celebrating um, because he's your son and you're, you're sad because I'm asking you to send out that son because he's your son, but he's not my son. I don't want that son in our house anymore. 
Uh, we read that, but Sarah, but Sarah. All, all Sarah can do in this moment, Abraham wants to throw a party because they've had a boy, Isaac, together. This is our son. All Sarah can do in this moment is focus on him, this other woman's son. It reminds her of all this stuff back there that she didn't like. And all she can do in this moment that should be celebration and joy is focus on him. Now, um, before we get too hard on Sarah uh, for her actions, and they warrant us being a little critical of her uh, and what she does, but before we get too hard on her, remember what she's been through. Uh, the very first thing we read about Sarah is this, uh, Genesis chapter 11. Now, Sarah, Sarai, at that time, before her name was changed, was childless because she was not able to conceive. That's the very first thing we read about Sarah. That's her identity. She can't have kids. Oh, that woman, you want to marry her? She can't have any kids. That, that was like, having kids in an ancient culture was a big deal. Your kids were the ones who protected you. They're the ones who made sure to help around the farm. Your kids were the ones who, when you got old, would care for you. But Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Um, children were how you passed on your family name, how you passed on your legacy. Without children, the family tree is just a family stick. <laughs> which, which, uh, like this, but Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. But also, children, um, you just get the sense that Sarah wants kids of her own. Like she could have just said, "Okay, you have Ishmael. Now we can Ishmael pass on our name. He'll care for us when he's old." But there's something in Sarah that longs for children. Uh, this is something that sits in many of us. Uh, I cannot tell you how many couples over the years I have sat with and prayed with, and uh, more than several, well, several occasions I have cried with because uh, the desire of their heart was to have kids and. Um, it didn't look like God was going to give them children. There are a few traumas that wedge themselves into us deeper than that experience. So we need to have a little bit of grace for Sarah. Just a little bit. Um, it's the, for my experience, it's, it has been the, the every month letdown of, um, Okay, let's get our hopes up. God's going to give us what we desire. God, let's 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 get our hopes up. And then every month it's the letdown and the reality of the letdown. And then it's every night the prayers you pray together. God, would you? We, we pray that you would grow our family. You would give us kids. Uh, and you have to ask yourself if you're looking at Abraham and Sarah. Twenty-five years of trying. Um, who knows how long they tried prior to uh, stepping into the promised land? So they're they're a hundred. How many nights do you pray before you stop praying? Some of you have had dreams you've chased, and that's a question you've asked. How many nights? Did it, did it start like I think many couples start where let's pray together, and maybe you even get down on your hands and knees, and then do you stop getting down on your hands and knees, and do you lay in bed and pray? And then do you just stop praying? Or does it, is it like cold turkey, I'm done praying for this? Or does it kind of just fizzle? We forgot to pray today. We'll pray tomorrow. And then eventually we pray once a month and then we stop praying. Is it ever a conscious decision when you take the spare bedroom that you were going to turn into the nursery and you convert it to an office? And do you ever talk about that decision? Or do you just kind of both know what's going on? And do you 
find yourself, when you stop praying and you stop talking about it, that you actually stop talking about a lot of things um, and you actually slowly start drifting apart. Sarah does some really awful things, um, but she's responding out of something in her past. Her strategy to fix it was, you just uh, take Hagar, and now she realizes that's still in there. It's still in there somewhere. And Abraham, he wants to throw a party, but she... God has been gracious, and God gave me what I promised, what he promised me. She can't even see it at this point. Not fully. She's at her own party that Abraham throws, and she's still sad. Uh... And that's what trauma often does to us, isn't it? Those of you who've walked through it, trauma can steal our joy in moments that should be celebration, <clears throat> but you're there and it does not feel like celebration. Um, it is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is really hard to be happy for them when trauma, pain, and hurt are sitting here. So they call you and they say, we're pregnant. And you say, congratulations, but you don't feel congratulations. Or they call you and they say, we're getting married. And you say, yay, can't wait. Um, But internally you're thinking, that was like my one single friend. And now am I just alone? Uh, I got the promotion. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm graduating. I got into the school. Uh, I asked her out to the dance and she said, yes. And Externally, what we say is, congratulations, yay, I'm proud of you, I'm happy for you. But internally, you're thinking, must be nice. Must be nice. Doesn't, I think it doesn't work out like that for me. In moments that should be celebration, trauma can blind us from the joy of it all. Um, how do you know if there's a pain that has buried itself deep into you? If you find yourself unable to cheer them on in their successes... If you find yourself unable to celebrate with them, there is a chance that if you peel back the layers, there is pain back there somewhere. Uh, If you find yourself in moments that should be happy moments, uh, moments that uh, should be celebrations, but everything just kind of feels muted. Uh, It's Christmas. We should be having fun. and, And yet you're showing up to the party and internally you're thinking, I do not want to be here. Um, or you're thinking, I can't enjoy this. Or you're thinking, I need like a strong shot of something to survive this. Okay, If you're finding yourself in that spot on a celebration that should be, yay, there's a good chance if you peel back those layers, there is pain in there somewhere. Maybe you got to the spot where it's like, you can't even pinpoint it. Uh, like this gentleman or this person last week. Um, you can't even pinpoint where did it start? I don't know where it's, it's back there. I've not thought about it for a long time, yet your life is finding yourself like, I'm not happy here. I'm jealous of them. I get mad at them. There is a, I fly off the handle at that, the mention of that. I turn on that station and I'm like, oh, I'm just boiling. There's a good chance that there's pain back there somewhere. Uh, it's important that we recognize that. That's observation number one. Uh, observation number two, uh, trauma can blind us from what is real. Trauma can blind us from what is real. Um, uh, or another way of saying that is it can get you to see something that's not really there. Uh, so Abraham throws a party. Uh, everyone's welcome. We're going to make steak. <laughs> We're going to have a party. I'm having a boy. Uh, or I had a boy. You got to meet my two-year-old, my four-year-old. We got a party today. 
Uh, and so he throws a party, but Sarah, she can't celebrate because Sarah says, well, what about that other woman's kid? She can't even name his name, if you notice in the text. She throws a, she can't be present for her own party. But there's something that Ishmael is doing, do you remember, that actually provokes her even further. He's mocking. That's what our, our uh, NIV translation says. It says, she's, uh, verse 9, But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Now, uh, anybody here have an ESV on them? Anybody looking at an ESV? What word is translated? Laughing. Yeah, many translations will translate that same word that some translations will say mocking as laughing. It's because it's a hard word to translate. But the word itself is fascinating. Uh, the word itself is a variation of the word in Hebrew, Yitzhak. Where have I heard Yitzhak? Oh yeah, Isaac. Ishmael, she, why is she fly off the handle? Because Ishmael is Isaacing. That's literally what the text says. Ishmael is Isaacing. Now, maybe the NIV seems to say he's mocking. He's laughing at Isaac. I don't know. doesn't tell us. But it doesn't say he's laughing at. It just says he's laughing. There's a chance that what he's doing is he's laughing. You can choose to see it as he's laughing at, or you can choose to see it as he's laughing. Sarah has that same choice. She can choose to look at the circumstance and say, okay, well, but what was her, what did she prophesy over her kid? Do you remember? Uh, verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She could look at this moment and say, God, this is confirmation. You promised that you would cause people to laugh with me. And look at Ishmael's laughing with me. God, thank you. You've been good. You've been gracious. Thank you. You're restoring our family. Thank you. You're putting the pieces back together. Or she could choose to see Ishmael as a threat. Uh, trauma can and often does blind us from what is real and causes us to see what is not real as real. Um, uh, earlier this week, we had a staff retreat and I had the opportunity in the staff retreat to, to, to hear a testimony of another pastor. Uh, I would love to, I'm going to see if I can get his permission because I'd love to just share uh, a video clip with you all. Uh, his testimony is really, really powerful. Um, but there was a moment where it's not my story to share, so I won't share too many details. But um, he shared about an experience of his past and what it was causing in his early days of ministry. And he said, uh, this traumatic experience of my past, I had found myself showing up and uh, every single person I met. And then he says, and I mean every single person I met. My gut response was, I, I would smile and say, hey, nice to meet you. But internally, every single time I met somebody, his, my gut response was, I wonder how you are going to try to hurt me. How is this person going to hurt me? Trauma causes us to see what isn't real. Like everyone is a threat. Everyone's. Uh, I've experienced this most with people who've had their hearts broken. Um, I think you probably have too, that uh, people who have had their hearts broken will often fall into this, this rationale, this mindset that, okay, he broke my heart, now... Uh, all men are the problem. Or she broke my heart. All women are the problem. I'll never date again because they're all this way. Every single one of them, they're all this way. Is that true? No. 
It's not true. And yet, it's the lie that trauma will try to convince us is true. Uh, if you found yourself growing up as an outsider, everyone in your family thinks one way, you think a little bit differently. Uh, everyone in your community has X amount of dollars, you have a little bit different X amount of dollars. Everyone in your community has this color skin and your skin color is this color skin. Whatever would make you feel like an outsider. If you ever felt like an outsider, it's possible that that traumatic set of experiences can create within you something that would say, um, I guess I'll always be the outsider. And even when somebody invites you in and says, hey, we'd love for you to come over. We want to get to know you. We, we enjoy you. Internally, you find yourself saying, no, they don't. It's a lie. There are, there are good people who genuinely are caring and considerate. Um, if you find yourself thinking these kinds of these thoughts, these, uh, all of those people are, uh, are the problem. You're just always waiting for the other shoe to fall anytime you meet somebody nice because all of those people are the problem. All, all Republicans are the problem. Or all Democrats are the problem. Or all Christians are the problem. All pastors are the problem. All teachers or all adults or the entire church or the entire government's the problem. You ever hear these kinds of things? All of them. If you peel back that kind of language, there is a good chance you will find that there's pain there somewhere. The institution of the church or the government or any institution didn't hurt you. Institutions can't hurt people. People hurt people. And you peel back the layers, there's a good chance that that institution is actually a person or a group of people who hurt you significantly. But the lie of trauma is to say, well, the whole thing is rotten. All, every one of them is rotten. If you find yourself saying those kinds of things, there's a good chance if you peel back the layers, there is pain back there somewhere. Uh, and it has manifested into this. Third observation. Trauma can blind us from joy. Trauma can blind us from what's real. Uh, and then number three, in our suffering, trauma can blind us from hope. Uh, verse 11. Uh, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offering, offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent them off with her boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and she sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. It's a tough one. Anytime it's a kid. Um, Hagar's done nothing wrong in the story. Okay, just read the story. Hagar's done nothing wrong in the story. Period. She just hasn't. There's no... Sarah also is responding out of her trauma, for sure. But Hagar... It's not Hagar's idea to get married to Abraham. It's not her idea. That's Sarah's idea. It's not Hagar's idea to, to get pregnant with Abraham's son, Ishmael. She doesn't even choose the name. It's not her idea. It's not Hagar's fault that she gets sent away, as though that ever could be somebody's fault. It's definitely not Hagar's fault that 
that her boy is now, she has to place her son under a broom tree or some kind of a bush and in the middle of the desert and watch him die. Uh, the scripture tells us it's uh, about a bow shot away. It's a, it's a idiom. We would say it's a stone's throw away. She has her son placed a stone's throw away and she screams out, doesn't say it's to God. She just cries out, I can't do it. I can't watch my son die. The word here for sob is the word baka in Hebrew. It means to wail loudly with tears. This is not the soft, subtle, like wipe your, your hand tears. This is the, God, I'm so angry. I'm so, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm lamenting. I'm frustrated. I don't deserve this. These are the tears of a mom whose son she's watching die. And this is the son that she was not, this is the, this was all under the guise of, this is all part of God's plan. And now she's watching the son die and she says, essentially, do something about it. Verse 17. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and he said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by his hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Uh, the Jewish commentary on this, known as the Midrash, so that says that this particular well of water, we know where it is. They claim this well of water is in a place known as Be'er Lahai Roy. Uh, if you were here last week, we spent some time um, looking at this. This is the same well that Isaac goes to after uh, the sacrifice scene in Genesis 22. This is the same well that Hagar used, like, when we meet her in chapter 16, she names the well, God sees me. God sees me, but she can't see the well. I love this line, um, verse 19. I feel like this feels true to me. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. You have to ask the question, was the, was the well there the whole time? And she just couldn't see it because she was heartbroken. That's what trauma does for us. In our suffering, trauma, uh, it blinds us from hope. Uh, there are wells. In, you, you read story after story in the scriptures of people who feel stuck, feel hopeless. Uh, and every single one of them, God meets their needs differently. Sometimes it's supernatural. There's a miracle. That's pretty a, a small select group. Most of the time it's through another person who's trying to comfort. It's through bread or water or a well. Um, but God gives some hope. Um, but in our trauma, often we can look forward and say, I don't see any option, any possibility that this will ever be good. It's just hopeless. I feel hopeless. Maybe you're in a marriage that feels hopeless. Or there's a relationship in your life that feels hopeless. Or there is, uh, between you and your child, it feels hopeless. There is a well there somewhere. Here's the truth of Christianity that I want to invite you to to claim this morning if you're feeling hopeless. Uh, there is hope here somewhere. One of the first things the Christians said about the message of Jesus was they said, they used this phrase, they said, this is good news. Uh, this is, euangelion is the Greek word. We translate it evangelical now and it's taken on a loaded uh, meaning, but initially it meant this is good news, good news. 
And then they said, what's the good news? It was the cross. Why the cross? Because he chose to go there. That's what they said. He chose to go to the cross. This is good news. Then you got to ask yourself the question, why does Jesus choose the cross? Why choose the cross? Unless you realize that there's a world that's blinded by suffering, by shame, from hope, from reality, um, from ever thinking tomorrow can be a different day than today. It's just going to be a repeat. We're on repeat, repeat, repeat. What do you do if the world is blinded? You choose to show them how. This is what the author of Hebrews says about the cross. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. you got to go through it. They said he did it because he didn't want us to lose heart. Now, next week, we'll talk about forgiveness. How do we address it? What do we need to do? What is beyond our control? It's really important that we figure those things out. Right? What can I do and what can't I do? Uh, it's a serenity prayer. Um, but today I just want to invite you, where is the pain? You don't got to say it to anyone. I'm not going to, I would never ask you to like turn to your neighbor and tell them the person who hurt you. I would never do that. But it is important that we name that person if they've hurt us. Here, just here. Um, because if we don't name it, we can't, got, we keep it hidden and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot withstand it. Uh, quick PS. If you grew up in the church, and if you love the church, if this is like the thing you love, if you're here and you're a Christian and I love the church, I got great hope in the church, and that's you too. Uh, it's really important for those of us who grew up in the church that we recognize that this is one of the scariest places on earth for some people, and for good reason. For many people in your community, uh, for many people, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, uh, for many people, this is the place their trauma started. Okay, that's important that we recognize this. It's important that we don't necessarily defend it. We confess it. It's important that we recognize for many people, the church started the trauma or contributed to the trauma. Um, we are guilty in that. Not you personally, not necessarily. Um, but, but us, those of us who are supposed to bear the image of Jesus, we have let, we have, we've done so imperfectly. And sometimes we've done so very carelessly. Again, not you personally. I, I'm not accusing you. Us. Our brand, for lack of a better term. I, uh, I've been watching the Hillsong documentary. If you watch this on Hulu, episode three breaks my heart. Um, and there's like story after story, week after week of the church. Again, not us necessarily, but the church. People who claim Jesus. People in positions of leadership and power who have hurt people. It's important that we recognize this because we're going to bump into people and we're going to invite them and they're going to say, I don't know. And if we come at them, it's going to, it's just, if that's you. First off, we're sorry. Um, I know that that word seems cheap, uh, but you're here. And so um, you're probably here because you need community. Uh, I, I love what uh, was shared before the service that 
or before the sermon that um, uh, the church is unique in that we've got multi-generations and multi-backgrounds. And I mean, what brings a group of people together like this other than Christ? There's so much that could divide us. And we've subdivided in almost every other area of our life. And maybe you're here because you realize, I just need something, a group of people who are different than me to help me. Uh, here's our, our commitment to you, and I'm gonna, we'll make this commitment. Uh, we will go slow. We recognize we, we will go slow. Um, but we're glad you're here. I'm glad you're giving church another shot, a community another shot. We will go slow. Um, we will not force it. Uh, but I truly do believe that the thing we long for and seek, the earliest Christians were right when they said, it's somehow found in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's all I got. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what words and lyrics and sermons cannot do. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Uh, Jesus, you told us that the Holy Spirit it plays the role of both comforter and the one who convicts. And so, um, Lord, for those of us who need a word of comfort this morning, Holy Spirit, would you bring us comfort? If our souls are tearing apart, if our hearts are breaking, for those of us who are shedding tears every night over somebody in our lives who are hurting, uh, Lord, we need your comfort. We need you to speak to that pain. And then, Lord, for those of us who uh, need a word of conviction, we have allowed a past traumatic experience to shape how we see the entire world. Lord, would you convict us in this? Help us to change our course. Help us to soften our hearts. Lord, help us to, to find the courage to deal with it. Um, Holy Spirit, whatever it is you need us to do, we invite you to do it. And uh, King Jesus, we pray this through your beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.